Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we find ourselves here. Uh, this is, uh, you know, every year people ask, hey, how do you get all the, the episodes into the vault so they can one day become vault episodes? Well, today's the day. It's it's ongoing. Uh, Carney has been loading the uh, the episodes from 2018 into the vault all day. And then at the end of, uh, of that effort, there was, of course, uh, a New Year's Eve party. Uh, so Carney is pretty worn out. Man, I am so sick of the sound Carney makes when he's backing up. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a bit annoying, but he, you know he has to back up, especially when he's carrying the heavier loads, such as uh, uh, the the episode in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, but I'm but I'm glad that has been filed away in the vault as well. Yeah, but we're just gonna have to get it back out again when those top uh, top men show up to look at it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, it's a, it's it's been a fun year, and we're about to enter into a, a new year for stuff to blow your mind. Uh, I think it's going to be pretty exciting. We already have some some uh, some pretty fabulous topics lined up. There, are, so, of course, other topics we've been meaning to get to all of 2018 that are now going to be 2019 episodes. Like you our, know, you know what I realized is we never did Science of Highlander two. I yet. know it. We it, we've been trying all year. Uh, 2019, it must happen because. I want to lie and say it's our most requested episode. I don't think that's true. <laughs> it's the most requested by 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 us, but um, and then we have a lot of sway over what gets done. We just uh, we just need to make an effort to to both see it again. Um, but I also want to do Highlander too because there are other movie based episodes that I would love to to, to cover. I would love to really just uh, dig into uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome, for example. I was rewatching parts of that for an episode we're going to be re- recording, that, you know, where we only like marginally mention Videodrome. But there's so much meat on the bone there. Well, especially in the digital age, uh, the way – basically, I think we're living in a world where we have all become Max Wren, brainwashed mm-hmm. by media and turned into killing machines uh, that are doing the bidding of the people who create our media. Yeah. Indeed, I, th- I think there, there's. I think the metaphor is even stronger now. Uh, but today we're we're doing the listener mail thing. Uh, Carney is is going to be roused just enough so that he might uh, deliver some listener mail to us. And we uh, once more, uh, another month passes, and we have uh, a number of great uh, bits of listener correspondence to refer to here. All right, so uh, we already mentioned the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe we should look at some mail on the subject of the Ark. Now, if you haven't heard it, we did a couple of episodes in November, I think. Was it November? When did we do those episodes? I believe it was the first week of December because it ended up accidentally corresponding with Hanukkah this year. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, we were talking about the legendary artifact, the Ark of the Covenant, as it has appeared in, uh, of course, in the Bible, but in Indiana Jones movies. And then in these scientific interpretations where people are sort of practicing what we called bronze punk, where they look back to legends and, and myths from the Bronze Age and say, what what if actually people were using some kind of science or technology here? Uh, and so Amelia gets in touch with us in response to these episodes. She says, Hey, Rob and Joe, your Ark of the Covenant episodes are officially two of my all-time favorites. As an unabashed lover of ancient history, both academic and pseudoscientific, I was glued to my earbuds. Your discussion of the mutilated Dagon statue and subsequent plagues got me thinking. Now, remember the story here, the idea is that the Philistines, uh, there's a story told in the Bible where the Philistines took the Ark 
from the ancient Israelites. They, they took it to the temple of Dagon, mm-hmm. their god. But then the ark did a bunch of mischief while it was uh, among the Philistines. It destroyed the statue of their god, Dagon, and it ended up giving them what the uh, original translation into English called emeralds in their secret parts. Right. And we had a lot of fun in that episode uh, looking at various theories regarding what those emeralds could have been. Now, we always need to be clear, we're not necessarily advocating the idea that this is like a record of a historical event that actually needs explanation. But what right. could these people have in, have had in mind? So, Amelia continues, why would the Ark myth choose mice and, quote, emeralds in the Philistines' secret parts as a specific punishment related to the defiling of their patron god? Could these two plagues have had particular significance relating to Dagon's role in Philistinian culture? And this is a great question because so many of the answers were looking at it from the modern perspective. They were saying, hey, we know that mice and, uh, and, and certain swellings, we can, we can sort of build a plague theory out of that, a bubonic plague theory. Uh, but indeed, like what is the, the original context? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and what would, this, what would this imagery have meant to the people who composed this story? So, Amelia continues, In college, I took a class on biblical exegesis, which refers to critical and scholarly analysis of the ancient texts. Exegesis uses historically relevant social and mythological lenses to interpret obscure biblical passages. One of the first things you learn from biblical exegesis is that the Old Testament is riddled with allusions to Sumerian mythology. I won't bog down this email with specific cases, but the overall effect is a vivid illustration of an era fraught with interfaith lore. The Abrahamic nomads of the Old Testament did not likely operate within the metaphysical monotheism, which characterizes later Christian theology. In modern terms, we may interpret the Jews' devotion to Yahweh using a contemporary Christian concept of one all-powerful existent deity. But exegesis study suggests this conclusion may be faulty. For the Hebrews of the Bronze Age Fertile Crescent, Yahweh more likely stands as the supreme god nested within a culture of Sumerian-devised polytheism. Yahweh is not the only god, but he is the true god, and his communication with his children of Abraham elicits an important cultural shift in humanity's philosophy on relation to the divine. I remember picking up on this as a kid in in Sunday school class. Oh, yeah. Because when you're reading those Old Testament stories, stories, it's clear that th- there are other gods yeah. and they are doing stuff. And yeah, you know, c- certain people may explain them away as, oh, well, they know they were really demons. But no, in the text, they really come off as gods. Oh, yeah. I, I think this is absolutely clear. I mean, this is one of the many cases where the Bible as a whole, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, both represent multiplicities of theologies. You know, Mm -hmm. the writers who were writing the different books and passages and even the stories that were compiled into these books had different points of view. And so some of them may have only believed that one God existed, but I think it's a clear, strong strain of thinking in many books of the Hebrew Bible that there are other gods, it's just that there's only one God worth worshiping. There's only one God that, that matters or only one God that's worthy, and that is the God of Israel. And so I think Amelia makes a great point about us uh, you know, bringing our sort of uh, – bringing one theological context to an ancient, ancient text. Uh, 
without realizing that it might not actually be appropriate. Right. Uh, so anyway, she continues, assuming this theory is correct, the Hebrew people were well-versed in the religious lore of their geographical heritage. In this case, Dagon presents as one in a series of older rival entities, which Yahweh's superiority lays low. Joe notes in your second episode that Dagon, despite his fishy reputation, was worshipped as a god of grain and possible sexual fertility. Taking this into consideration, a plague of mice, notorious defilers of grain seeds, past and present, is humorously self-evident. More disturbing is the notion that the emeralds in the Philistines' secret parts may not be hemorrhoids or tumors in the anus, but growths on the genitalia. Robert mentioned some studies leaning in this direction regarding a syphilis outbreak, but whether or not the Ark of the Covenant employed syphilitic biowarfare, the idea of a disfiguring disease which ravages the genitals of those whose patron is a fertility god smacks of poetic irony. Uh, again, I think this is a very good point. I, I think that – you know, we mentioned this in the episode. Like is this story about what the Ark did to the Philistines? Is it supposed to be funny? I think the outcomes and punishments that they specify for the, for the Philistines, they came up with those because they were supposed to be funny and, like, humiliating. Not, I, can't, I can't help but imagine the Ark of the Covenant on an open mic stage with the uh, brick, brick wall behind it, <laughs> kind of yeah. staring into members of the audience. <laughs> yes, and so, I mean, even, well, one funny thing you point out there is the brick wall, you know, often you watch the brick wall comedian and the people in the audience are laughing, but we're today like, this isn't funny, what's going on? <laughs> so humor definitely gets lost even across a single generation or two. You know, you look at the stand-up comics of the 1980s, not always funny anymore. Obviously, some amount of humor is lost between the Bronze Age and now and lost in translation. So it can be difficult to tell. Is it supposed to be funny or not? I think it probably is. I think this is supposed to be kind of like in the Miller's Tale when the guy gets the hot iron in his butt. <laughs> Anyway, coming back to uh, to finish Amelia's email, she says, In short, Yahweh and his sacred ark don't mess around. If this interpretation has legs, it seems Yahweh not only punishes but, take pain, but takes pains to customize his outrage to the deity in question. For a people whose history is riddled with oppression and assault, this sort of justice would hold special significance, possibly even dark humor. And then she adds some uh, words of thanks. And so uh, thank you, Amelia. I, yeah, th this makes a great point and I think this really adds to to our consideration of where these stories come from and what they might have meant. Yeah, and you know, some might out there might think, well, I, I like the idea of the Ark using humorless laser beams uh -huh. to smite its enemies uh, rather than humor. But really we have to remember too that that far more than uh, than, than than laser beams – Humor is a power that can topple gods and topple uh, 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 tyrannical rule, etc. Uh, I, I believe you've been reading The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. Absolutely, yeah. And that is, that's one of the big themes in the book, the, yes. the power and the danger of comedy uh, to, uh, to threaten the, uh, the power of a divine being. Nothing is more terrifying to the narcissist and the tyrant than the laughter that people are unable to contain at him. Right. I mean, this is the, the age-old power of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the emperor's new clothes, etc. 
All right. Well, as long as we're talking about the ark, uh, we have another uh, bit of listener mail here that comes to us from David. David says, hello, Robert and Joe. I enjoy the latest podcast as I do most of your episodes, although <laughs> as I – Well, you know, I mean we cover a lot of different uh, topics here. I, we realize that, uh, that, that, that every episode is not going to be for every listener. Oh, of course. Uh, he continues. Uh, although, as I have a mild case of uh, misophonia, the front sequence as you begin to almost whisper, I did begin to feel slightly enraged. Well, well, but <laughs> some, but you know, it's this is another case where some some listeners may have a problem with whispering. We know for a fact that multiple listeners will put us on as they're going to sleep. So mm-hmm. you know, it, it kind of goes both ways. Can't please everybody. Can't be everybody's dream come true. Anyway, uh, he continues, I thought you might like to read some observations that I have made over multiple viewing of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, all right. Because we did. We talked uh, about Raiders of the Lost Ark at length in those episodes. We got a little carried away. At one point, I think we just basically accidentally turned it into a movie crush episode for about (laughs) 10 minutes. So sorry about that. It was not on purpose. But, uh, you know. It was a little bit on purpose. Unavoidable. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So he continues. uh, So he has uh, several different areas he focuses on here. First of all, the idea that Indy has no effect on the outcome. Mm -hmm. He says, quote, this is something you touched on and was brought up, uh, brought to popular culture in the TV show Big Bang Theory. Uh, It is that despite Indiana Jones's effort, nothing he does stops the Nazis from accomplishing their goal and in fact helps them. Whilst this is true... That is not the point of the movie. For me, he is not meant to succeed. He is coming up against one of the greatest military forces of all time, and to have him defeat them would be ridiculous. This was the point I made in the episode, that the genius of the climax Mm -hmm. of Raiders of the Lost Ark is that Indy is victorious in the end not by fighting. There's not a fight scene at the end of the movie. He doesn't beat down the enemy and throw him off a Mm -hmm. cliff or something. Instead, Indy is victorious at the end by realizing what the Ark means. that's his that's his victory is that the Nazis don't understand what the Ark means and Indy finally does. Right. And, I, th- you know, I also am going to go maybe off on a, a limb here a little bit and say that I think our expectation that Indy should absolutely save the day and, and should be a real, uh, you know, uh, factor in this scenario, that this is perhaps a poisoning of the well uh, brought on by our just uh, obsession with superhero movies and also epic uh, narratives, say Lord of the Rings. Right. And I, I love a good superhero movie. Uh, I, I, I love, uh, I, I love, you know, Blade Two is one of my favorites. Uh, I also I enjoyed <laughs> some of the, the 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 recent Marvel films as well. But in those films, the superhero absolutely has to save the day. That is the trope. You can't have just a small story or even a, you know, a very exciting story that's sort of taking place uh, in the foreground or the background of larger events. Likewise, in a, an epic fantasy like Lord of the Rings, it is about the individuals who do the key things that save the world. Well, I mean, I think it's that these modern Marvel movie writers have read T.S. Eliot's critique of Hamlet and mm-hmm. they're like, okay – we don't want to have an ineffectual hero the way Hamlet is who's just indecisive and doesn't ultimately fix anything. So we've, we've got to go in the opposite direction and instead have these like boring, perfect, do everything right here. I, I, don't get me started ranting on Marvel movies. <laughs> uh, well, uh, again, I, I'm not hating on them. I enjoy some of them as, as well. Oh, but, I do too. Actually, I like the Iron Man movies. Oh, yeah. I, the third one especially I really dug. Uh, the Shane Black one. Uh yeah, so on, on one hand, I think part of it is you, you can't look to a mo- to every movie and expect it to accomplish the same things that a, a superhero film does. So certainly one can't look to every film and expect it to, you know, have exactly the same beats 
as a superhero film and have the you know, the protagonist uh, engage in the overall narrative in exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have to say that I I enjoy many a story where the, the the hero or the protagonist doesn't really change the outcome of events, or it's just a smaller story and you get the sense of something larger, something more epic taking place that they may have limited uh, interaction with. You know, the kind of story I love even more is the one where the ostensible hero is actually quite ineffectual and it is the sidekick or some other ally who has to do all the actual work. Of course, I guess it's the Don Quixote model, but uh, a great example of this is Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, absolutely. Jack Burton is just not very useful and Wang is the real hero. Right. But then at the same time, he does have at least one key moment to shine. Yeah. Uh, and and this comes back to a discussion that, that I know that uh, I believe we, we've had with Lauren Vogelbaum talking about stories, films, et cetera, or even you know, short stories as well, where there's a lack of agency in the character, where you reach a point where it's just stuff happening to that individual. Mm-hmm. And they're not actually – like going beyond like, – at least like Indy is doing something. He is saving his own life and the life of Marion. Uh, towards the end, and uh, and then there's some arguments for some other things that are going on there as well. But it doesn't become just a like a psychedelic freakout uh, of the Ark, which it you know very well could have been because you're dealing with the Ark of the Covenant. Anyway, David continues. So okay. the, ne- the next point that he touches on is the idea that Belloc saves Hitler. Okay, so Indy's rival in the movie, the, yes. the French guy. Yeah, f- fabulous character. Uh, in the movie, the Nazi commanders are there to obtain the Ark and take it to Hitler. There is a scene near the end where Belloc convinces them to open the Ark on the island instead of in front of Hitler. Ooh. The reason is obviously because of Belloc's own want to have the glory and his chat with God. Uh, this is the whole, it's a radio for speaking to God. Right. But if the Nazi commanders would have been more insistent, Hitler and probably all of his major party members and generals would have been extinguished. I have never noticed this before, but that's an extremely good point. It makes Belloc even worse as a villain because we could have killed Hitler in the 30s, but Belloc, <laughs> Belloc prevents it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an interesting read. I had not thought of that. but. It would just been a longer movie if it was just at the end of it. Somebody else, um, who's Indy's boss? Uh, what was his name? Marcus Brody. Yeah, D- Denim Elliot. Yeah, it, it would have it would have kind of sucked if the end of the movie was just Brody reading a newspaper and reading. Oh, the Ark of the Covenant just took out all the uh, uh, the, the the leadership of the Third Reich. Interesting. Roll credits. <laughs> Wouldn't have been the same. Yeah. Okay. The next point: Nazis don't act like Nazis. Uh, David says, what we know from history is that the Nazis never showed restraint when taking historical artifacts. However, when looking for the Ark, they do. They have found the map room and other buildings, the snake room, and we hear they have been digging for months. Why wouldn't they just dig out the buildings from the map? It took Sala's team a a few hours to access the room that was uh, correct. If they did this, then in a few months, they would have found it. Uh, yeah, that might be a good point. Like, the Nazis are the villains of the movie, but the movie actually doesn't make them bad enough. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it, it's weird looking back on, on storybook Nazis. Yeah. Like, it, occurring at just a, the right time in history where it was, I guess, far enough away from uh, uh, the, the Second World War, but also, uh, uh, you know, further removed from our, our current uh, struggles in the world. I mean, it's always been important, I think, to rem- to remind everyone of how awful uh, the Third Reich was, how mm-hmm. awful the Nazis were, and that there were no uh, there were no heroes among uh, the Third Reich. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like it has become uh, 
more important somehow to remind people of that today. And part of that is because we are getting further and further away from the Second World War. We're getting into a time where there are fewer, uh, you know, actual, there are fewer people carrying the actual flame of that, uh, of that, uh, that whole world that we have, we thought we'd move beyond. Oh, yeah, like maybe at the time this movie was made, there was uh, – you could feel more confident that, well, Nazism is something the world is now just done with. So mm-hmm. you can make cartoonish historical Nazi characters. Now it somehow feels a little more serious to have Nazi characters. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's certainly become a, a more complicated uh, thing to tackle in your films. In fact, I can't think of, of anything recently that is really – you know, struck a similar chord. I guess there are. I mean, there was like a zombie, there's Nazi zombie films that are coming out. So, yeah, uh, but I haven't seen them. Uh, perhaps we'll hear from listeners on this whole topic. All right. Uh, next point. Were roof access hatches common in ancient buildings? All three buildings that we see accessed had roof access points and no indication that there are traditional doors. Hmm. I am unsure, <laughs> but I believe there is reference to the city being covered by a sandstorm. That would mean that in the operation time of the city, the ground level would be fairly consistent both internal and external to the buildings. The map room shows this also. So why would they have a, a rooftop access? In more modern times, I would believe we would for this uh, – we would have this for maintenance. But would this city – uh, yeah, that's a good point. Why do all these buildings have openings in the roofs? I mean, I can think of archaeological sites where there are ancient structures that have opening and openings in the roofs. Uh, I think of like some of the structures of like uh, the ancestral Pueblo peoples of, of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes there will be like the entrance to a building is in the center of the rooftop. Uh, I don't know if that kind of thing is common in ancient Egypt or not. Well, I guess one thing – that, that I that I do think about is the fact that many of these the ancient structures we've talked about on the show, uh, you know, ziggurats, for instance. You know, part of the point of building a structure like that was to have access to the top in some fashion, because you are building a, a sacred mountain, you are building a holy place, and the peak of that place is kind of the point. It's it's like building skyscrapers today. Of course, you're going to have either a restaurant. Uh, hopefully one that revolves. You're going to have a restaurant, you're going to have a tourist uh, location, or just like some super swank penthouse for Vladimir Putin to live in. You know, whatever the angle is, like the top of the thing is not only important, it's kind of the point. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, That's I, where you're going to summon Gozer. But, but is that also where you need to get into the building from? But you could access the building, right? I mean, yeah. this is the whole plot of Escape from New York, remember? He, uh, Snake Plissken lands on the top of the World Trade Center, uh-huh. and then that is how he enters uh, the uh, the penal island of New York City. So I think what you're saying is that the ancient Egyptians anticipated they would need to architecturally justify the plot of Escape from New York. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. I believe that's what's happening. Uh, I don't know. These are just some ideas. I, I, I don't know to what extent, uh, you know, Looking to the ziggurat, if this holds up, uh, you know, across all cultures, perhaps uh, by the time of this uh, uh, Hollywood uh, ancient Egyptian uh, structure, uh, they were just like, oh, well, a roof's a roof. I don't know. Well, thanks for getting in touch, David. These were uh, these were some great points to discuss and some stuff I'd never thought about before, even though I, I still hold that I think – Raiders is probably the best action adventure movie. I guess it depends on what else you count. And, you know, comparing like uh, older and recent ones, that can be kind of difficult. More recently, I don't know, I feel like it's kind of hard to beat Fury Road, right? Oh, yeah. That one was terrific, the Mad Max film. 
uh, that's that's probably the the best you know, pure action adventure film that uh, that I've seen that's come out uh, in recent years. So anyway, yes, always happy to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark. All right, well, on that note, as we leave the Ark of the Covenant behind us, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will dive into even more listener mail. All right, we're back. All right, this next mail came, I think, from uh, an episode we did about the concept of scientific reductionism, whether scientific disciplines all reduce ultimately to uh, if you have a perfect understanding of them, can they be perfectly reduced to lower level understandings of, of physical reality? Like can chemistry ultimately be explained entirely by physics and can biology ultimately be explained entirely by chemistry? Or at each level, are there genuinely new and unique properties that emerge that you could not predict or understand just by having a perfect understanding of the the uh, science underlying them? Uh, so anyway, uh, Peter says, thank you for the distilled awesomeness of your show. It makes my daily workouts an exercise for my mind as well as my body. I'm writing to point out that someone uh, – and he, he asks uh, Weinberg. I think he's talking about Steven Weinberg who we talked about in that episode. Uh, who holds to a theory about reductionism, that everything can be reduced to fundamental physics. Uh, and uh, he's pointing out that he thinks Weinberg is wrong and is the best type of wrong, is provably wrong via mathematics. The mathematician Gödel, and he's talking about Kurt Gödel there, proved that not all truths that exist in a mathematical system can be proved with the fundamental axioms of that system. If there are fundamental physical laws to the universe, you can't use them to deduce all the possible behaviors of that system of truths that can exist in the system. Based on the insight of Gödel's theorem, I think that emergence is pretty much undeniable. It's provably true in very simple mathematical systems. How much more true must it be in our universe if it is governed, as Weinberg holds, by fundamental laws? You know, this may uh, – oh, thank you, Peter. Yeah, th that's an interesting thought. I don't know if I've heard uh, Gödel applied to physics, to like the, the things in the world before. Mm -hmm. Gödel is usually applied to uh, – logical or mathematical systems. And he, he's correct about what uh, – I think he's correct about what Gödel's uh, incompleteness proofs uh, show, which is that no system, like no system of numbers or anything like that, that follows a set of formalized rules can, uh, can possibly be used to prove all the things that are true about that system. Hmm, interesting. There are always going to be things that are true about a system that you can't prove using the rules of that system. And uh, and so, yeah, I haven't thought about how that applies to physics. That, that is interesting. There's been a subject I've been wanting to come back to for a while, which is a question, a sort of meta-scientific question about the, the philosophy of science, which is the question, are there really universal physical laws it certainly is a helpful convention to say that there is such a thing as laws of physics, uh, but there are some very there's some interesting philosophical work that says you know even though we get consistent results in experiments, can we necessarily say from that that there is such a thing as a physical law? So anyway, I, I think that's worth coming back to in the future. Oh, certainly. Oh, but but uh, before we go on, uh, Carney has just alerted me that the Ark episodes have just burnt through their their um, their, their their wooden crating uh, because we have another listener mail that relates to the Ark that oh. we didn't get to earlier. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, this one comes to us from Kristen, and she says, "Hi, Robert and Joe. I really enjoyed last week's episodes on Greek fire." 
That was a vault episode we did, uh, and the Ark of the Covenant. In response to your request for peaceful uses of the flamethrower, I present the flame weeder. Last summer, I interned on an organic farm and witnessed firsthand the wonders of this device. Farmers will plant seeds like carrots and take a couple of weeks uh, that take a couple of weeks to germinate. Then a few days before they are due to sprout, the farmers will incinerate the weeds that have grown with blasts of fire from a large portable blowtorch. Not only is it super cool, it lets farmers weed quickly without spraying any pesticides. I would recommend doing a YouTube search. It is pretty awesome to watch. Now, Kristen is actually not the only person who got in touch to let us know about this. I remember back when the episode came out, somebody else linked us to this and they were like, here's how you use a flamethrower for peace. Oh, see, I, I don't remember that one. I remember people, I think there was something using flamethrowers against rampaging mice or something in Australia. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, somehow I missed this uh, when, when anyone else mentioned it uh, to us. I, it reminds me of the scene in uh, Miyazaki's uh, Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind, where mm-hmm. they're going around through the uh, the Valley of the Winds, uh, food crops, and like burning the the, the, the bits of uh, spores from the, the the poison jungle that have spread there. Hmm. Now, of course, Kristen also has some comments on the emeralds and the secret parts, right? That's right. She says on the topic of emeralds, I would propose that hemorrhoids would be a more effective curse than many people would realize. <laughs> Seems pretty effective. Yeah. She says, I'm an occasional sufferer from this uh, curse due to severe IBS. In modern times, they are simply uncomfortable and obnoxious, but it is possible they could have been very dangerous for ancient peoples. Chronic hemorrhoids bleed and can lead to open fissures. With, and without germ theory or antibiotics, an infection would have been very likely. Death by hemorrhoids? What a way to go. Wow. Thanks so much for all the awesome podcasts and happy holidays. Oh, this does remind me. I remember hearing. <laughs> I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, they always, I always felt like they sounded potentially dangerous to me because I, I, it, at some point, maybe this was when I was in high school, like somebody had like a second or third hand story of an uncle who died from exploding gangrenous hemorrhoids. I don't know. What? I don't know. I, they, I did not see an actual medical paper on this. This was, again, second or third hand. But this was the story that was going around. And so it was enough to make me, uh, you know, from, early, from a very early point, uh, consider hemorrhoids as a potential explosive death scenario. Wow. Well, that does not sound true, but <laughs> I, um, Okay. How about one about our vault episode on dangerous foods? Oh, Yes. This comes from our listener, Melanie. Melanie writes, Hi, Joe and Robert. I'm listening to your Vault episode on dangerous foods. When you mentioned the toxicity of uncooked or undercooked kidney beans, I just had to write in and share my story. One time I decided to make a triple bean summer salad from scratch with dry beans. I thought that simply soaking the beans overnight was enough to get them to the softer texture that we're used to when they come out of the can. I didn't know they also had to be cooked. When I ate my bean salad for lunch the next day, it seemed a little crunchy to me, but I figured I just hadn't soaked them long enough and continued to eat it. A couple of hours later, I started having a lot of stomach discomfort, bloating, and feelings of nausea. It so happens that I was starting my very first day of an internship with a couple of my classmates. We were in pharmacy school. Go figure. (laughs) So I talked to them about it, but we couldn't figure out what was wrong. When the day was over, I sat in my car in the parking lot for about an hour because I was too nervous that I would get sick during my drive home. When I finally mustered up the courage to start the 45-minute commute, I made it about 10 minutes down the highway before I had to pull over and release my stomach contents on the side of the highway. Oh. 
I called my husband who did some online searching at home to find very quickly that uncooked beans are in fact toxic to humans. As you mentioned in the podcast, it was a lesson learned and I haven't been able to think of beans the same way ever since. I am a fairly new podcast listener and I love your shows. They're very entertaining to me during my long commutes to and from work. I hope your long commutes to and from work, Melanie, uh, do not continue to involve uncooked bean intestinal distress. I'm sorry to hear that. All right. Well, I think the perfect email to follow that one up with is uh, this email we received from Ellen, which touches on uh, uh, our farting episode that we uh, aired, I think, at some point in the last year. Okay. But also it, it – The Fartonomicon. The Fartonomicon, yes. Uh, and also with some uh, certain tie-in to our episode on ticks and uh, and related organisms. So Ellen writes, I just listened to this episode, referring to the Fartonomicon, and loved it so much I listened to it a second time right after to make notes. It was great. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, the, the skit at the end is, uh, is of course, uh, uh, reason enough to, uh, to listen to it twice. Uh, she says, just a note about farts. I was recently diagnosed with Lyme, uh, Lyme disease, and in the uh, antibiotic protocol to cure my Lyme, I went from being one of the gassiest humans ever to now barely farting. One of the symptoms to Lyme is fibromyalgia, which I was never diagnosed uh, uh, to, to having, but when I Googled it, realized that one of fibro's symptoms is excessive gas. It would be interesting to know different diseases that have gas involved and how I cured my flatulence while curing my Lyme. Just an idea for you if you uh, want to do another fart episode uh, as uh, you ask about people who don't fart. I went from farting 200 times a day to maybe 20 Twice. Thanks, Ellen. Now, I would have to assume, I, I don't know, but I would have to assume that what happened here during the antibiotic protocol is that the antibiotics cut down your gut bacteria load, mm -hmm. like the, they were harmful to the populations of gut flora you have, which are what help produce a lot of the gases that come out of you during farting, right? Right, or it just simply created a magical circle into which uh, the, the, the demon lord Toots for Realsies could not pass. <laughs> Oh, they were like holy antibiotics. They've been blessed by a priest. Oh, yes. Yeah, a little cross in each one. You know, speaking of uh, exorcisms and whatnot, uh, we did hear from a number of listeners about uh, laws against uh, you know, exorcism and, uh, and witchcraft in Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, I think a, a few different individuals shared stories about it on, uh, in our Facebook group. Our Facebook group is uh, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. You can find it on Facebook. You have to, you have to apply to join. But basically – to gain access, all you have to do is know the name of this podcast. That's the only question. It's a pretty low bar, but you'd be surprised how many people uh, apply and either don't know that information or forget to input it. Well, I think that's just an indication that there are a lot of scammers on yes, Facebook yes. who are trying to join all groups to spam them with, you know, work from home and make $20,000 a week. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we nothing nothing of that. But we don't have any of that kind of riffraff in our discussion module. It's just all listeners to the show posting about episodes and sharing stuff about squirrels. Yeah, ever since our squirrel episodes, we have had a heck of a squirrel takeover on uh, supplemental digital content there. Yeah. I hope people aren't getting tired of it. They probably are. They probably <laughs> are getting tired of squirrels. I don't know. I think there, there may be some new territory that's being uncovered. I feel like there is a certain amount of repetition, but every now and then it's just some new angle that I hadn't thought of. Well, maybe we should mention uh, a couple of emails we got about squirrels and, and related uh, interspecies carnivory. 
Let's do this one from Benjamin. Wait, I think this is not quite squirrels, but it's close. (laughs) Benjamin says, hey, guys, first let me say thank you for doing what you do. I wouldn't be able to make my 120-mile round-trip commute without you guys. Ooh, that sounds rough. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin writes, I just listened to the podcast about animals eating their own feces and loved it, even though I definitely considered skipping it at first. However, after listening to the stuff you were saying about rabbits, I had to write in. Wait, this is not squirrels. This is rabbits eating poop. That's okay. Yeah, it's another uh, animal episode that I think resonated with a lot of people and produced a number of field reports. Yes. Uh, So Benjamin writes, it reminded me of this time I was in college walking to class and saw a bird dive bombing the ground out of the corner of my eye. Intrigued, I walked over to get a closer look and saw that there was a rabbit on the ground being attacked by this bird. But the rabbit didn't seem to be phased and continued to go about its business. Reluctantly, I got closer and closer, and I noticed the rabbit had a live baby bird on the ground in front of it. This is squirrel territory. It became clear the rabbit was trying to eat this little bird. After about 20 minutes of this airborne avian assault from what I assume was the mother, the rabbit finally hopped away. When I walked over to the still-alive baby bird to get a closer look at what happened, it was to my horror that the rabbit had eaten the legs off of this little bird. Definitely blew my mind. Thought we had a classic case of banicula on our hands. Thought you might be interested and was curious if this is common. Uh, This is from Benjamin. Banicula, by the way, uh, is a bunny Dracula that is in some, what, young adult or children's books. Herbivorous, though, I believe. I I don't know. I've never read them. Well, I haven't either, but I think banicula just uh, sucks the – Sucks vegetables in some way or another. Oh, it sounds fun. I had not heard of it before, but uh, our, our our colleague Lauren Vogelbaum has a bunicula shirt that she wears to work. Well, assuming this story is true, I don't know how to explain it. I do not know if carnivory is common in rabbits. I have never heard about that before. But then again, I hadn't heard about it in squirrels until we decided to, to dive into squirrel horror. So uh, who knows? Oh, by the way, minor uh, squirrel slash scug update for my household. Um uh, it has been been de- decreed that the word scuggy is okay. Like scuggy puts kind of a uh, you know a fun twist on scug. Oh yeah, yeah. right. The the Bonnie didn't like scug because it sounded like you were insulting the squirrel. Yeah, she said you know you know I can't quite put a finger on it, but it just it sounds demeaning to the to the squirrel. But uh, then I would occasionally talk about going out to feed the scuggies, and uh, and then that she said that sounds all right. So well, I'm sticking with that scuggy. Okay, yeah. I guess it does have that kind of sound, but as far as I know, Skug has no negative connotations whatsoever. No, no. All right, let's take one more break and we'll be right back. Okay, we are back. Now, a number of listeners got in touch with us about our follow-up episode on the object Oumuamua. We talked uh, not too long ago about how there had been some subsequent research on the first interstellar visitor object in our solar system that we know about, the, an object that seemed to have come from another star, and another stellar system somewhere out there in the galaxy, passed through our solar system earlier last year. And uh, and there have been some studies since then, one of which sort of said, you know, it meets a lot of the characteristics of what we would expect for a light sail alien probe. Uh, but of course, we, you know, did not conclude that, yes, it is aliens, though the object does continue to 
remain very interesting and has gotten arguably even more interesting. So anyway, here is uh, our first message. This is from our listener, Greg. Greg says, hey, guys, just finished the new Oumuamua episode and really enjoyed it. But one thing stuck out that you guys mentioned in passing but didn't really explore, Oumuamua passed the sun inside the orbit of Mercury. This seems like an incredible cosmic hole in one in my book. Did this trajectory allow Oumuamua to gain velocity using the sun's gravity? What are the odds of a random object uh, flying into the solar system that would have such a perfect trajectory. Thanks and keep up the great work. Well, I don't know how to calculate the odds of an object being like that, though uh, part of the argument people have made that it was some sort of targeted probe is that uh, is that they thought at least it was very uncommon that we would encounter a piece of interstellar debris of this size and these characteristics because uh, it would it would make it seem like debris of this kind is much more common than had previously been assumed. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think even since we did the episode, I saw at least a headline for an article that some new candidates for interstellar debris had been sighted within the solar system. Uh, so I don't know if that's correct. I didn't look deeply into that. But if so, that would make it seem – well, yeah, the issue is just that interstellar debris is much more common than we thought it was. Right. And then, I mean, it goes without saying that if, if something from uh, from outside of our solar system enters our solar system, it cannot help but interact with the the, the gravitational pull of our sun. Oh, right. And that that's the other thing. He says, you know, would this – did it get a speed boost from the sun's gravity? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything that passes – uh, into the sun's gravity well like that, it gets a tremendous boost in speed as it goes into its perihelion, you know, where it's passing closest to the sun. And it's – yeah, it, uh, I don't remember what Oumuamua's peak speed was, but it was around when it was, you know, slingshotting around the sun like that. Right. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, a log uh, in, uh, on a stream and the stream is hitting the rapids and things are speeding up. Like yeah. it, part, it, part of it is just that that – those are the waters in which it is moving, uh, you know. So if if it's intentional or or if it's accidental, which of course is the more likely scenario, uh, the the, uh, the the interaction is going to be the same. Yes. So the answer is yes. It got a definitely got a speed boost from the sun as it went around the sun like that. As to what the odds are that it would have that trajectory as just a random piece of junk that was unguided, I, I have no idea of knowing what those odds would be. And I would, I would suspect that you can't really calculate what those odds are because you don't have enough information to, to Right. I mean, that, that still seems to be – that's an open question that's yeah. very much in discussion. Like, what are the odds of these objects? But good question, Greg. All right. We have another Amuamua listener mail. This one comes to us from Robin. Hi, Robert and Joe. Just a quick thought. After listening to your latest update on Amuamua, you mentioned looking for signals of advanced technology, looking for something like a Dyson sphere. This spurred a thought. What if dark matter is Dyson spheres? Follow me for a moment here. Large objects in the universe like galaxies behave in a way that makes it seem like there is a lot of matter out there, a lot of mass that we cannot see. Thus, dark matter, something out there affecting things, something we cannot detect. Okay, now the Dyson sphere part. Imagine a 100% efficient Dyson sphere, somehow capturing and converting the for nefarious use by dastardly aliens, all electromagnetic radiation. We would then have the mass of a star affecting everything nearby as usual, but invisible in electro uh, in, in the EM spectrum. We cannot see it. And so follows my far-fetched conclusion. What if dark matter is a bunch of Dyson spheres out there, a bunch of EM invisible stars we cannot detect, but which still exert the gravitational influence? Perhaps a bit far out in the ort as a theory, uh, but food for thought in any case. Thanks for another thought-provoking episode and keep up the great work. 
Now, I love this as sort of a sci-fi scenario for alien technology, but I think uh, – it you know, I could be wrong, but I think this can't be the case. And I think the reason is that Dyson's spheres would necessarily, according to the laws of physics, have an EM signature. They would be detectable by the electromagnetic radiation they produce. Now, you might say, wait a minute. I thought the whole point of a Dyson sphere is that it absorbs all of the light that a sun puts out and it mm -hmm. makes that into useful energy. Well, yeah, OK. But then what happens to that energy? Energy doesn't disappear. It gets used to do work and then it gets released as waste energy, which is heat. So you would be able to see the infrared heat coming off of these Dyson spheres. They would appear like dark objects that, you know, are not producing light, but they're producing a kind of light, which is the infrared radiation that indicates exhaust heat. And of course, the Dyson sphere would put out a heck of a lot of exhaust heat. I mean, just imagine all of the energy coming off of a, of a star getting converted into heat that's radiating into space. Yeah, because we're talking about a, a hypothetical civilization here that had to turn to enslaving stars in order to meet their energy demands. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're, they're really playing some high-powered video games on, on that Dyson sphere. <laughs> right. Then again, maybe it's some kind of, you know, exotic matter thing that we mm -hmm. don't even understand yet. It seems unlikely, but who knows? But that's a great question anyway, Robin. All right. This next piece of mail comes to us from our listener, Pat. Pat says, hi, guys. My memory was jogged when I heard your discussion about To Serve Man. This was in our horror anthology episode yes. at the end of October. Specifically, your speculation on chirality and whether aliens might need differently handed molecules as food. The author James Blish adapted Star Trek the original series episodes into collected short stories during the 1960s and 70s. But he also wrote an original Star Trek novel called Spock Must Die. Ooh. The plot revolves around a transporter accident that creates a duplicate version of Spock, who, like all such sci-fi mirror beings, is also morally reversed. He's a bad guy. <laughs> Problem is that both Spocks are physically identical. Vulcans have perfect bilateral symmetry. So much of the tension of the story comes from not knowing which of them to trust. Hmm. One of the Spocks barricades himself in sickbay, and when the story all resolves itself, the reason he chose sickbay is revealed. He was mirror Spock, and sickbay was the only place on the ship where he could manufacture the correctly handed molecules to ingest. Oh, my goodness. He couldn't gain sustenance from the ship's normal food. Love the show. Keep blowing my mind. Regards. That's awesome. Uh, I, I didn't expect uh, uh, there to be – because that was the thing we talked about is like the idea that some uh, an alien creature would not be able to eat any food on Earth even if it you know, depended upon you know, some sort of similar organic matter. Right, uh, that our entire biosphere might be somewhat poisonous to them. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So here's an example of uh, some science fiction that, uh, that, that definitely tackles this scenario. All right, we have a bit of listener mail here. This one is pretty exciting because this might be our first bit of listener mail related to our new podcast, Invention. Oh, yeah. Invention, for those of you who are not aware, this is the new show that Joe and I are putting out. It publishes every Monday. You can find uh, the, the website for this podcast at inventionpod.com. And we recently dropped an episode of, the, of this show uh, on the guillotine into the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed. 
And I also made sure that the landing page for that episode at Stuff to Blow Your Mind for the guillotine episode has links out to the different places you can subscribe to it. Now, if you like our show, you want to help us out, don't just listen to an episode of Invention. Click that subscribe button. That is what will really help us out and what will help you out to keep getting episodes in the future for your enjoyment and edification. Exactly. So Christy writes And in, corruption. Yes. And so Christy writes in and says, at the end of the Vending Machine podcast, it was mentioned in so many words, if there uh, were an, an online equivalent to reaching your arm up the vending machine to cheat it or steal from it, this made me think of the idea of the vending machine double prize. Every now and again, you'd put your money in the vending machine, then get two treats by accident. I don't know if this has happened to anyone, but I think the online equivalent would be when some something you buy online is defective. Usually the company you buy you buy it from lets you keep it and then sends you a new functional product. Kind of like a double prize if you can live with one defective product. Anyways, I always enjoy listening to the Invention and Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast on a weekly basis. You can't have been listening to Invention on a weekly basis all that long. Well, <laughs> by the when we're reading this, there have been, what, three episodes? Uh-huh. And by the time this episode publishes, there'll be, what, four or five episodes. So so now is a great time to get into invention because you can, you can really start binging them. Get in on the ground floor like one of those pyramid schemes. Yeah, yeah. Pyramid, future episode of Invention. Um, <laughs> we, we, we've also heard from some people just recommending topics for Invention. I know mm-hmm. we heard the other day. This may have been on the discussion module, which, again, Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module is also a fine place to talk about Invention. But someone said, hey, do one on soap. Yeah. And, and that sounds fabulous. I would love to do an episode on soap. Yeah. So, Christy, I think this is a really good point because part of what we've raised in the uh, vending machines episode is just from my own anecdotal personal experience as a child – I was commenting that I never would have stolen from a store that had humans operating it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see – I didn't feel like there was any problem trying to reach up into a vending machine to steal something out of it, which I don't think I ever accomplished. But it seemed like a, a fruitful use of time. Right. And if this is a generalizable uh, distinction people make, like they're more comfortable trying to steal from a machine than they would be trying to steal from anything that has a visible human involved – does that also extend to online commerce? And the more that I think about it, yeah, I think it probably does, right? Because people are all the time uh, – I mean even people who would never like shoplift from a store that has humans operating it, they will, I don't know, maybe claim that they didn't get a package when they did or something like that from Amazon. Right. Yeah, I mean – Especially with Amazon being such a colossal uh, engine of product delivery, I feel like there'll be occasional situations where that where yeah they just say hey keep the original even though it's defective and you're stuck like she said with one functional product and one maybe slightly dysfunctional product. Uh But I guess there are probably people out there that try and game the system, and then likewise, I'm sure Amazon has a whole fraud department to deal with that. I'm not saying I I do that by the way, (laughs) even though when I was a kid I would have reached up into the vending machine. I don't do that with online commerce, but I have I've heard tell of of people doing such a thing. Now, speaking of the vending machine episode, we also heard, and I apologize, I don't remember the individual's name offhand, but it was on the discussion module, and they brought up that there is an automat scene in Dark City. Oh, we we discussed it Did in we the discuss episode. That? Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I kind of forgot about that. Uh, but th- this is just another reason I just – I find myself really wanting to rewatch Dark City as well uh, to see that automat scene but also just see all the other spectacular weirdness in that particular motion picture. Yeah, I haven't watched it in a while but I remember it, it was one of my favorites back in the day. It's a great movie. Yeah, and uh, – uh, I think the individual that brought up Dark City on uh, in the discussion module, I think they also mentioned that they had visited an automat in New York City at some point. 
um, or it almost visited or something to that effect. So, uh, yeah, the, the the call is still out there for anyone who has had – really, if you've had any experience with a weird vending machine uh, or uh, or if you, you've encountered vending machines of the past and have tales to tell of them, uh, we would love to hear, hear uh, from you about that. But either way, if you haven't yet, go check out Invention. Click subscribe. All right, maybe one last one here. This came to us from Drew. Drew says, hey, guys, I was just listening to part one of your episode on illusory truth. And that was the uh, pair of episodes we did about the psychological phenomenon where once you have been exposed to information, even if that information is false, you're more likely to believe it later on. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's like a – conditioning you to information makes it seem more believable. Right. Even when it's like obviously untrue. Uh, But anyway, Drew says, in that episode, you brought up how people tend to find more humor in a joke when they're already familiar with it. I can't help but wonder if the rise in popularity of internet memes can be partly attributed to the same idea. If you were looking at a trending meme without any context, it might come across as nonsensical and you wouldn't give it a second thought. Whereas if you're already aware of the meme, you may be more likely to find it funny because you already know the punchline. Anyways, I love the podcast and I hope you guys can continue continue to do it for a long time to come. Thanks. I think so. I, I think that, w- that would apply here. But I find that, especially with memes, memes like any punch punchline, any joke, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's kind of, I think there's a, there's a curve, right? Uh, there, you hear it and then you hear it again and maybe it's a little funnier, but then there's going to be a dropping off point. Like you can only see a particular meme so many times, particularly I'm thinking like GIF responses on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where you, you've seen it so many times, you can predict that it'll be dropped into uh, the, somebody's comments feed and it loses all comedic value. You know, this makes me think about a book that uh, that I've recently been reading. It's by – you ever heard of uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman? No, I haven't. He's this cultural critic, this guy. He wrote a book in the 1980s about – uh, about how television was changing American culture. He basically had this idea that a lot of what culture is is determined by the dominant forms of media within it. And so there are some inherent differences between cultures where information exchange is domin- dominated by, say, like printed text mm-hmm. versus television or something like that. Uh, and, of course, this was the 80s, so it was before the internet. But the internet, I think, preserves a lot of the elements of television that he was talking about. I don't know if I agree with his theory or not, but basically his theory was that uh, one of the effects of a television-based culture is that it becomes that knowledge is not so much understanding things but knowing of things. So knowledge becomes not so much having a deep understanding or comprehension. It it becomes about like recognizing that something is a thing and that this – I I – sort of get the feeling that, eh, I don't know. I don't know if he's right overall, but I see this in trends in humor where like so much modern humor and television humor seems to be the the mere recognition of a thing that one has encountered before becomes the basis of a joke. Right. You know, like all those movies, like the the parody movies that just like put characters from other movies in them and that's the joke. It's like, oh, there's Napoleon Dynamite in the background. No, yeah, that, that that does that does make sense. This also makes me think that we we definitely have to do video drum at some point <laughs> in the in the future because yeah. you, you're already uh, doing the research for it. Well, uh, d- just to clarify again, I, I'm finding that book very interesting, but I'm certainly not endorsing it as something that I necessarily 
where I necessarily agree with his uh, final conclusion. I haven't finished it yet, and I, d- I don't fully know what I think. But it's, it's certainly provoking thought. All right. We'll tune in in the future to find out more. All right, so there you have it. Uh, I think all the episodes are moved into the vault. Um, We've knocked out the first listener mail episode and really the first episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind for 2019. So uh, we hope you have enjoyed the ride, and we hope that you will remain with us as we continue to explore uh, this weird and wonderful uh, world of ours. In the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, links to our social media accounts, uh, a store where you can buy some cool merchandise to, to support the show, a logo uh, or a show-specific design, what have you. And if you want to support the show in a way that doesn't cost you a dime, rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. And again, subscribe to Invention. Rate and review Invention as well. Uh, and that'll really help us out. Huge thanks, as always to our excellent audio producers Alex Williams and Tari Harrison if you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com Thank you.